The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Hebrews chapter 6. What I want to talk to you tonight about is hope. We could all use a little more hope, amen? Anybody in here that could use a little bit more hope? Okay, I'm definitely putting myself in that camp right alongside of you, and that's what I want to talk to you tonight about. The the title of my message for you is Anchored by Hope, and uh, we'll get there in a moment, but I want to set things up by telling this story. Back in 1927, while a U.S. submarine was patrolling off of the Atlantic coast, it collided with the ship and suffered severe damage, which caused it to quickly sink to the ocean floor about 100 feet beneath the surface. Now, remember, this is 1927. So a rescue ship was immediately dispatched, but there were rough seas, and there was this big storm that delayed all initial rescue attempts. When the divers were finally able to go down to the vessel, they heard tapping coming from inside. And so they knew that there were survivors, and they quickly discerned that it was Morse code that was being tapped out. And and they gathered that there were six survivors from the initial crash. And the message that the the men trapped onside this submarine kept tapping out was, is there any hope? Please hurry. Is there any hope? And so that's the question that I want to consider with you together this evening. Is there any hope? It's a question that seems to be on a lot of people's minds lately. Folks are looking for something to put their hope in, right? Hope is essential. It is to our emotional lives what oxygen is to our physical lives. Hope is oxygen for the soul. And without it, it's basically impossible to live. Um, Dante, who is an Italian poet, once wrote a poem called Inferno. And in part of that poem, he imagined that above the gates of hell, to the entrance of hell, there was a sign that reads, abandon hope, all ye that enter here. Hope isn't present in hell. It's quite literally a hopeless situation. So again, we need hope to make it. But hope is hard to hold on to, like a wet bar of soap. It just constantly is trying to squeeze through our hands and slip through our fingers. There was a recent Wall Street Journal poll that illustrates this. The the, the survey asked people if they thought that life would be better for their offspring than it had been or has been for them. And um, those who responded, only 21% said that they thought life would be better for the next generation. It's not hard to see why people feel this way, right? We live in turbulent times. Our world is marked by a slew of growing threats and problems. There's terrorism, racial tension, economic instability, a global pandemic, market volatility, nuclear proliferation, the threat of looming war, the list goes on and on and on. More and more, I think you'll agree with me, things are starting to feel a little hopeless. But we don't have to live without hope. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. You see, the Bible talks about a hope that can steady our souls 
and act like a ballast or a buoy for our hearts in the midst of even the fiercest storms. And it's what we read about in Hebrews chapter 6. So if you would, look with me beginning at verse 19. We'll be reading just two verses tonight, but there's so, in, so much in there, it's going to take us a while to unpack all of it. It says this, we have this hope. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. A little bit of background on this text. The author of Hebrews is writing to a group of Christians who are suffering persecution because of their faith under the hand of a notorious ruler named Caesar Nero. This was the guy that would feed Christians to lions and have them murdered by the thousands in the Colosseum. Now you have to remember these Christians that the author is writing to were people who were losing their jobs, their homes, their businesses, their careers, and in many cases, even their own lives, all because of their faith. And so to these struggling believers, the author of Hebrews writes, and part of his message to them was, don't lose hope. This hope that we have as believers, it's something that can steady you in the storm. Now, at this point, I want to take a moment to define terms. Because when the Bible talks about hope, it uses that word in a different way, and it means something different than the world's definition of hope. When the world talks about hope, it's, it's talking about one thing, but when the Bible talks about hope, it's talking about something different. So let me give you the world's definition first. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines hope in this way, a feeling of expectation and a desire for a certain thing to happen or to want something to happen. So examples would be things like, I hope I get a raise, amen. I hope it works out. I hope she says yes. That's worldly hope. It's really not any different than just wishing upon a star. But biblical hope, biblical hope is different. It's not wishful thinking. It's not just blind optimism. It's not Pollyannaism, just smiling in the face of circumstances where the overwhelming evidence is against you. Biblical hope is this. It is the confident expectation that what God has promised, he will do. Let me read that again. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that what God has promised, he will do. But what is the basis for this hope that the author of Hebrews is telling us to hold on to? What is the source or the reason for our hope? Well, we find that in verse 19, which says that our hope is real and it's meaningful because it's tethered to this one who has gone before us and entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, what is that all about? Well, the author's talking here about Jesus and his high priestly work on our behalf, going in beyond the curtain. The curtain that is being spoken of there is this curtain that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple from the holy place. So this is the curtain that separated the very Shekinah glory, the presence of God from the people. And only the priest was allowed to go in there. Now, it's significant and worth noting that when Jesus died on the cross, this curtain, which historians tell us was 18 inches thick. Can you imagine that? 
a curtain 18 inches thick. The Bible tells us that at the very moment when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is finished, that that curtain was ripped in half. Not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, thus signifying that God had opened the way for us to enter his presence. However, there's a problem. And the author would have recognized that what he was saying would have posed a problem in the minds of all of his Jewish reading audience. Because why? Any good Jew would know that only the high priest was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And even that, he was only allowed to go in once a year on the the most holy day on the Jewish calendar, on the day of Yom Kippur, where he would go in and sprinkle blood and atone for the sins of the people. Jesus wasn't a high priest. In fact, Jesus wasn't even a Levite. In order to be a priest, you had to be from the priestly tribe of Levi. Jesus was part of the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe where the kings came from, not the priests. So he needs to reconcile this, the author does. How could Jesus enter the Holy of Holies without being a descendant of Levi? And according to our text, the reason he was able to do so is because he was from a different, albeit superior, priesthood. That's right. The text says that he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Oh, this is where it gets kind of interesting and cool and fun. Who is Melchizedek? Well, his sudden and mysterious appearance in the 14th chapter of the book of Genesis is really a fascinating story. We aren't told really anything about him. We don't know about who his mom was or who his dad was. We don't know much about his past or his genealogy or any of that. We aren't told any of that. He just kind of shows up on the biblical stage and has this brief interaction with Abraham and then he disappears just as quickly. But that event was so significant that it's talked about four different times in scripture. So who was he? Well, most scholars agree that this guy named Melchizedek, who showed up in the life of Abraham briefly, was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. It's called a Christophany. A pre-incarnate appearance. So Jesus is so excited about entering the story. He can't wait until he takes on flesh and blood. And so he just comes and he sneaks into the story a couple of times in the Old Testament. And there are a couple of different places where you can read about these Christophanies. And here's why scholars think that that's what is happening with Melchizedek. For starters, we know that he is described as a king of Salem. Now, Salem is, is the root word from which we get our word Jerusalem the king of the city of peace. In fact, the word Melchizedek actually means king of righteousness. Secondly, we're told that he was a priest of the most high God. So he was both a king and a priest. Biblically, in in the order of things, you weren't allowed to hold both offices. But here we find an individual named Melchizedek who holds both offices of both a priest and a king. And after Abraham had engaged in this battle and he defeated this king named Chedorlaomer and rescued his nephew named Lot, Melchizedek shows up. And the first thing he does is he presents Abraham with bread and wine. He gives bread and wine to him and to his men. Does that remind you of anything? Hmm. Bread and wine. The, 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 the very symbols that Jesus would go on to use in communion. This is my body. This is my blood. Then after that, he bestowed a blessing on him. Now, 
again, insight into Jewish culture, the, the greater always bestows the blessing on the lesser. And so Abraham is the father of the faith. Yet here he is allowing Melchizedek to pronounce a blessing on him, and he blesses him in the name of El Elyon, God Most High. Then Abraham turns around and gives a tithe, pays a tithe to Melchizedek, tenth of everything he has. Now what's interesting about that is Abraham would give birth to Isaac and then Isaac to Jacob, and then from Jacob would come the 12 patriarchs, including Levi. So in a sense, you could say that Levi was there in Abraham, in his loins, and thus paying a tithe to Melchizedek through Abraham, thus signifying the superiority of the Melchizedekian priesthood over the Levitical one. Now, what all of that proves is that Jesus had the right to enter the Holy of Holies and carry out his priestly work on our behalf. But what is that priestly work? Well, it's, it's twofold. In ancient times, the main job of a priest was to atone for the sins of the people by offering sacrifices on their behalf. And I told you earlier about how the high priest on the high holy day, Yom Kippur, would take the blood of a sacrificial lamb and he would carry it into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant on what was known as the mercy seat. And there God would receive that sacrifice and cover over the people's sins for the next year. It was all a type, a picture of what Jesus, our great high priest, would ultimately do on Calvary's cross when he paid for the sins of the world, thus covering over all of the sins of humanity once and for all so that we could have fellowship with God. But that's not all. The other thing the high priest would do is he would represent men before God and God before men. And this is what Jesus does as our high priest. He's gone into the Holy of Holies. He's opened the doors of relationship between God and men. And the Bible says that he lives to make intercession for us. What that means is Jesus at this very moment is praying for each and every one of you. Is there anything cooler than that? Knowing that God is hearing the prayers of Jesus and it's your name that is on his lips. And by the way, he is a priest forever, the text said after the order of Melchizedek, never to die. There was a long succession of high priests that came, but with Jesus, he is a priest forever. And so he's right there at the Father's right hand, and he's praying for Mary, and he's praying for John, and he's praying for Sue, and he's praying for Daniel, and he's praying for you, and he's saying, God, bless them, equip them, anoint them, give them strength for the trials and the struggles ahead. This, guys, is the reason for and foundation of all of our hope as believers, that Jesus forever lives, and he has gone before us as a forerunner, opening the way for us to make our way into God's presence. Peter, in his epistle, put it like this. He said, praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice the words living hope. I love how Peter distinguishes the hope that we have as believers as a living hope. And this marks it out as distinct and different from the hopes of all the world and all of the different various world religions that are out there. You see, every year, Muslims from all over the world converge on the 
the, the Saudi Arabian cities of Mecca and Medina. Why? Because they go to pay their respects and pay homage to Muhammad, who is their prophet, who is buried there. After his death, the Buddha, his body was cremated and relics that were left over, parts of him, pieces of him, were distributed to various monuments. And you can go, for example, and visit the tooth of the Buddha in one shrine. You can visit the grave of Confucius in the province of a particular province in China. And you can visit the grave of Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism in the Smith Family Cemetery right there in Illinois. The point is you can visit all of these graves of all of these founders of world religions. But when you come to a cave that is located just on the outskirts of the old city of Jerusalem, and you make your way into that garden-like setting, and you find your way into that tomb, you'll find that it's empty. I've been there. It's incredible. There's a sign posted on the door that marks what the angels told the women who were coming to embalm Jesus' body. It says, he is not here, for he is risen. Amen? Listen, Christianity is the only religion that offers a living hope with a living savior. And that hope, it should serve as a bedrock for your faith in God. Since he's risen, that gives us hope about our own future. But how does this hope work? We, let's get practical with this. According to verse 19, our hope functions like an anchor for our souls. And I want you to picture this in your mind's eye. It functions like an anchor for the soul. I don't know how many of you have been there, but not too long ago, my family and I took a trip down to the USS Midway, which is docked in the San Diego Bay, aircraft carrier down there. I think we have a picture of that, if we can pull that up. It's an absolutely massive ship and a great tour, by the way, if you haven't taken it. You can spend an afternoon there. And this boat is about 20 stories high. I mean, you're, you're viewing it against the backdrop of the, the San Diego skyline, and it reaches the 20th floor of those buildings. It weighs 70,000 tons. It's as long as three football fields. It covers an area equivalent to about four acres. Now, a ship that size, as you might imagine, requires a big anchor which this one has. In fact, it not only has one anchor, it has two. I was reading about them this past week. The anchors on this boat are each 20 tons. Each chain link for the anchor weighs 130 pounds, and there's 2,000 feet of chain. These are giant anchors that are meant to protect this vessel in the midst of even the most severe weather. And, and the anchors serve two primary purposes that I want to talk to you about. Number one, they protect the ship from shipwreck, right? It can't keep you from having to go through the storm. You're still going to have to face the storm, even with an anchor. But what it can do is it can protect you during the storm so that the wind and the waves that would have otherwise done you in and caused you to shipwreck aren't able to do so. And the same thing applies to spiritual anchors. You see, when we pass through life's storms, which we all will, we need an anchor for our soul something that will keep us steady so that we don't suffer spiritual shipwreck. And that is a very real and present danger for every one of us. 
I want to read a scripture. This is from the Apostle Paul. He was writing to his young protege, a man named Timothy. And in one of his letters, he said this, Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you might fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected, and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander. That's 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 20. Notice how he said, these guys have suffered shipwreck in their faith, Hymenaeus and Alexander. What happened? Well, he points to the answer in the verses we just read. Instead of building their faith, instead of standing on their faith, instead of solidifying their faith, they rejected their faith little by little. Instead of clearing their conscience and walking in accordance to it, they silenced it and seared it. And we all know people who've done the same thing, right? Made a shipwreck of their faith. Sadly, there are people who you probably know who aren't with us in this church today, but who were here a year ago, and maybe they've walked away from the Lord, and maybe they've turned their back on him. Like the shipwrecks that you can find scattered across various beaches around the world, the shores of history are lined with individuals who, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, started off great, but somewhere along the line, they didn't pay attention, and they ended up rejecting their Lord. So like, as an example, there's this guy named Charles Templeton. That name probably doesn't mean anything to you, but the next name I mention will, Billy Graham. Now, these two guys started out as contemporaries and ministry partners. Actually, in the early goings of their ministries, Charles would attract larger crowds than Billy Graham did, and many, many were led to faith through his ministry. But some point pretty early on in his ministry life, he turned his back on the Bible and eventually turned his back on the Lord and walked away from his faith. Meanwhile, Billy Graham built his ministry on the Bible and on his faith, and the rest of their stories our history, right? Billy Graham went on to preach to millions of people, and Charles Templeton ended up living a sad life. At the end of his life, he wrote a memoir, which he appropriately titled Farewell to God. What happened? He didn't have an anchor for his soul, and therefore, it led to shipwreck. You need an anchor for your soul. The other reason you need an anchor, anchors keep ships from drifting. For most of us, I don't think the danger is that we're just going to outright walk away from God or our faith tomorrow. Apostasy is not the great danger in here for most of us. For most of us, the greater danger is that we would slowly drift away from God little by little. And the scriptures are replete with warnings about this. For example, in Hebrews 2.1, we're told this, we must pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not what? So that we do not drift away. And the thing, of course, that makes drifting so dangerous is that it's subtle. You don't really even know that it's happening. It's, it happens imperceptibly, right? Most of the time, by the time you realize you've drifted, you're like miles down the beach. I, I can think of one example. Um, when I was in high school, a friend of mine and I decided to go surfing at this spot um, off of the coast of Point Loma, and the only way to get to this surf spot was to take a boat. So his dad had a boat, and we took his dad's boat out to this surf spot, and we'd never driven a boat before, but we figured, how hard can it be? We're smart guys. We can tackle this. And somehow, by the grace of God, I don't know how we did it, but we managed to load the boat and 
It was just one of those little zodiacs, you know, and we got it in the water and eventually puttered our way out to the surf spot. Now it's funny, like you're making your way through San Diego Harbor, Harbor on, a, on a little zodiac, you know, the water's like almost splashing over the side. Meanwhile, you've got huge aircraft carriers coming in and sailing boats and we're like, but we got our surfboards, it was pretty cool. And we make our way out and we take the anchor, throw it over the side of the boat, jump off the boat over to the surf spot and had a great time. The only flaw in our plan was that while we dropped the anchor, we didn't check to make sure that it had properly set. Now there's a difference between dropping your anchor and setting your anchor. Now a simple tug on the rope would have proved our, uh, our, our problem there. But we didn't think to do that, we didn't know better, and so we just were surfing, and we were watching after a while as our boat kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. It's getting further and further away, and we're like, is the boat moving? No, no, we threw the anchor, I remember, we're good. And I'm pretty sure the boat's moving, and it's definitely moving. And we're like paddling, scrambling for life, you know, to get to this boat, and thankfully the currents weren't too strong, and we were able to get to the boat. But the events of that day definitely drove home an important lesson for both of us about how important it is not just to drop your anchor, but to make sure that it's set. So let me ask you a question. Do you have an anchor that is firmly set? Are you secure or are you beginning to drift? Some signs that you might have begun to drift recently may include the following, a lack of appetite for God's word. Whereas once you opened the word and God spoke to you and now you're finding days, weeks, months go by between meals, spiritual meals. You might just content yourself with a snack, but your appetite for the word isn't there. It could be a sign that you're drifting. Another sign might be a loss of desire for fellowship with God's people or a growing fondness for the things of this world. If you're experiencing any of these symptoms or signs, they could be a sign that you've begun to drift. And, drift. and the reason that we need to get this settled in our hearts is because none of us wants to experience spiritual shipwreck. And the other reason that we need to settle this in our own lives is because one constant in every person's life, no matter who you are or how holy you think you are, all of us are going to face storms. It's been said in life, you're either heading into a storm in the middle of a storm or just exiting a storm. And maybe you find yourself in one of those storms right now. And, and they, they're not all physical in nature, right? Sometimes they're emotional storms. It could be a storm of, of depression, a storm of anxiety. Sometimes they're relational storms and you never thought you'd be in this position. And here you are struggling in your marriage or with your kids. It might be a career storm. And you didn't know that at this late stage in the game that you'd be looking for work. And it's a storm. It might be a spiritual storm. It might be a financial storm. And you're looking at the bills as they stack up and you're wondering how are you going to pay them. It might be a medical storm in the form of a call from a doctor and a diagnosis that you weren't expecting. These storms, they're unpredictable and they hit without warning. And when they do, they hit hard and they threaten to sink our ship. And what happens, what happens in the midst of those storms is we start to wonder, God, where are you? 
God, I don't see you working, and I'm in the Word, and I'm here at church, and I'm plugging in, but God, have you abandoned me? And that question had to be on the minds of these Hebrew Christians who had given their lives to Jesus, and now were suffering persecution. And they thought to themselves, is this what we signed up for? Because I don't see Jesus showing up in my storm. And God's message to them is the same message to us. Don't give up hope. Even though you can't see me, especially when you can't see me, don't stop putting your hope in me. Why? Because like an anchor, hope does its best work in the unseen parts of our lives. That's the thing about anchors. If you can see the anchor, it's not working, is it? An anchor's job is to be dropped into the depths of the water, far beneath the raging wind and the roiling storms on the surface of the sea, but that's where it's working and that's how you know it's working. You see, if you can see it, then it's not faith. And this is, uh, this is, this is how faith and hope work together, right? If hope is our anchor, then faith is the chain that tethers us to our anchor. So you have to trust and believe that God is at work, that he hasn't abandoned you, that he's right there with you in the midst of the storm. And when you can't see him, that's when you know the anchor's doing its job. Now, I'll level with you. I wish that it didn't work like that, but I don't make the rules. I'm just the messenger here, right? I wish that this verse read differently. I wish it said something like, we have this hope as a helicopter for the soul, so get ready. Or I wish it said, we have this hope as an airplane for the soul, so we can fly above and over our problems. Whisk me away, Jesus, you know? Like a while ago, there was a, a movie that came out called Hope Floats. I never saw the movie, I can't tell you if it's any good or not, but I disagree with the premise. Based on what this verse says, hope doesn't float like a balloon to cause you to escape your problems. Hope sinks like an anchor, and it does its most important work deep beneath the surface in the unseen parts of our lives, steadying us in the midst of life's storms. So as we get ready to close now, here's the question I want to leave you with. Does your soul have an anchor? You need to know the answer to that because the depth of your peace in life will always be determined by the strength of your anchor. Let me say that again. The depth of your peace will always be determined by the strength of your anchor. Over the past year and a half now dealing with COVID, I think a lot of us have found ourselves in storms and those storms have proven the validity or the untrustworthiness of the anchor that we have tethered ourselves to, right? And I'm here to tell you that if your hope isn't in Jesus, then you've probably learned that whatever you were tethered to hasn't worked in the last year and a half. If your hope is anchored to your finances, your peace is gonna fluctuate up and down with the markets. If you're anchored to your health, as long as I have my health, then your peace will ebb and flow with your health. If your hope is in a relationship, then your peace will go up and down depending on the status of that relationship. If your hope is tethered to your job or your kids or your circumstances or anything other than Jesus, then I'm afraid you're going to eventually be let down by your anchor. You're headed for trouble. 
But when we anchor ourselves to Jesus, we can have peace no matter what's going on on the surface. Because there's something internally, there's something in our souls that buoys us. And this, guys, this is what we need. Because we can't control what happens out here. But by God's grace, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, things can get crazy out here, but we can have a peace that passes understanding in here because we're tethered to something that is firm and secure. I'm not sure if you caught that or not, but at the end of verse 19, it says, this hope we have as an anchor for our, our soul is both firm and secure. You can set that anchor. Don't just drop it, but set it firmly into the rock of Jesus Christ so that you and your faith family shall not be moved no matter what life throws at you. There's an old hymn that says it like this, and I'll, I'll leave you with this. It says, in times like these, you need a savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. This rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. The rock is Jesus, the only one. I'm very sure, I'm very sure my anchor holds and grips the solid rock. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this time that we've gotten to spend together, just being encouraged by your word. Your word is spirit and it's life and it reaches in and it ministers to us on a personal level. And I pray that by the power and the work of your Holy Spirit, you would begin to do that right now in this moment. Bring peace to people who are experiencing turbulence. Because Jesus, you didn't promise us a life free from turbulence. In fact, you promised us the opposite. But I'd rather know Jesus and walk through that turbulence than have it smooth sailing, but know Jesus. We need you. Every hour we need you. So Jesus, we want to anchor ourselves right now. Some of you, you're doing this right now. You've, you've drifted. You're not where you want to be. You're not where you were. And the good news is that you could have drifted miles and miles from where you started, but all it takes is one cry, Jesus, save me, and he'll reach down and he'll pick you back up. Remember Peter, he started sinking, he cried out, and in the last moment, Jesus reached down and he saved him. And he will do the same thing with you. He will not allow you to suffer shipwreck. You call on the name of Jesus and you will be saved. You call on the name of Jesus and you will be healed. You call on the name of Jesus and you will find peace in the midst of your storm. Right now, I believe by faith that God is bringing peace into the house of God. There is a peace that passes understanding. The Bible says he will keep him, he will keep her in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him. You put your thoughts, you fix your eyes, you set your anchor in the rock that is Jesus, and you let him deal with everything else. Jesus, we love you, we worship you, we praise you, we give you all the glory and all the honor. In your name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. 
Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.